I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 1. If you've been with us for the last few months, you know that we've been doing a study in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are currently in chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes, but we're going to take a bit of a break, and we'll get back to Ecclesiastes next month. What I'd like to do for the next few weeks is look at some passages of Scripture that are very near and dear to the heart of the leadership of our church, and I'm going to begin with Psalm 1 this morning. I'll read all six verses. Hear the word of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. When you want to plant a tree or a bush or some flowers in your yard, where do you go to buy those plants? What criteria do you use to choose which lawn and garden store or nursery or greenhouse that you will go to in order to acquire plants like that? Do you choose the place that sells the most product? Do you choose the place that has the most impressive store, the most impressive facility? Do you choose the one that has the most professional and attractive advertisements and commercials? Or do you choose the one that has the friendliest salespeople? Isn't the most important factor, if you want to buy a tree to plant or a bush to plant or some flowers to plant, isn't the most important factor the strength and health of the plant itself? Isn't that really what you care most about? I don't like comparing churches to businesses. At our very core, what we do is very, very different. But there are some similarities that are valid. And one of them is that churches ought to be judged and evaluated by the strength and spiritual health of the disciples that are grown there. That that is what's most important in determining whether this is a good church or an average church or a bad church. What is the health and spiritual vitality of the disciples that grow there? Too often people choose churches for those more superficial reasons that I referred to earlier. The effectiveness of the advertising, the attractiveness of the building, the friendliness of the people, or the quality of the music. And those things are all good. But none of them by themselves can produce strong and healthy disciples. None of them. Since many of you are new to Oakwood, We're going to take a break from our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. As I mentioned, we'll get back to that. But I wanted to take just a few weeks to talk about who we are as Scripture defines us as a church. Because maybe you're wondering, 
whether this is a quote-unquote good church. I want to tell you about what we're committed to, and I want to do it from Scripture. Those of you who've been around for a while, you know about three and a half years ago, the leadership of this church got excited about a particular passage of Scripture because we felt like that passage of Scripture spelled out the mission and vision of our church better than anything else. That passage is Isaiah 61, and I want to read to you just the first two verses. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. The person speaking there is the Messiah, the one who would come to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And the Messiah promises to bring good news, good news that would transform God's people and therefore transform the world. And you remember that that passage, that exact text, is the very text that Jesus used in his first sermon here on earth when he went into the synagogue in Nazareth. He read this prophecy, and you remember what he said when he sat down after reading it, sat down to teach. First thing out of his mouth. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. What a claim he was making. That he was the Messiah. He was the one sent by God to bring the kingdom on earth. He was the one that had come to transform the people of God with the good news The good news that would provide healing and deliverance and comfort to poor and broken and enslaved sinners like you and me. His coming would be the beginning of restoration and renewal and reversal of sin and all of its consequences and effects upon the creation. His coming would bring about a transformation of sinners and then ultimately of all creation. But then in verse 3, I didn't read quite that far. In verse 3, that was the verse that really grabbed us. Because it gave a picture of what the Messiah saw of his final product, of the final effect of his work in the establishment of the kingdom on earth. He gives us a very beautiful picture of the church in verse 3. And let me read that picture for you. It says, they, speaking of God's people, will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. What a wonderful description of the church of Jesus Christ. Oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And as we dug into that, we saw how many places in the scripture, from beginning to end, it uses that analogy, that metaphor, that verbal picture of a tree a healthy, vibrant, growing, fruit-bearing tree as an image of what both the individual Christian's life is to be like and of the church as a whole. And he uses that, over, that picture, that visual image, over and over and over again all through Scripture. Matter of fact, in this particular reference to an oak tree, the reason for that is that in Old Testament Israel, the largest, strongest, and most long-lived trees in Palestine were oak trees. And so 
the oak tree was a vivid image of what spiritual vitality and strength and health should look like. And we embraced that is what we're striving for, is for Oakwood Church as a whole and each of you as individuals, as disciples who make up that community of believers to represent that kind of spiritual health and vitality in the world. If you look at the front of your bulletin, it has there the motto of the church, which talks about growing roots, bearing fruit, branching out. You see how we're using that verse to motivate us, to excite us, to give us a picture of what we're all working towards. Growing roots to begin with, then bearing fruit, and then branching out. And if you look closely, the the logo of the church is not very big on the front of the bulletin. If you look closely, it's a picture of a beautiful, healthy, vibrant tree next to a great body of water. And if you look even more closely, you'll notice that the land that the tree is rooted in is shaped like an open Bible. And so when we came up with this logo a few years ago, it was to illustrate that desire that is at the root of the leadership's drive at the root of everything we do is to bring about that kind of discipleship, that kind of spiritual health and vitality. And so today what I want to do is go back to Psalm 1 because it's another allusion to spiritual health and vitality in terms of a tree. It's really that image is so beautifully portrayed for us here. Psalm 1 most commentators will say is it's an introduction to the entire book of Psalms. Matter of fact, they believe it was probably written in order to summarize the message of the Psalms in general. Phil Riken says, all the rest of the Psalms are expositions of Psalm 1. And so as we look at Psalm 1, what we should see here is a description of the priorities and hopes of the church and of every individual believer. Verse 3 says that the mature Christian is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. There's that oak of righteousness that Isaiah 61 talked about. A beautiful picture of health and vitality. Well, where does that come from? How does a believer develop like that? Where do you get that kind of spiritual strength and vitality well, as our motto says, it begins with the roots. You ha- a tree that is strong and vital has strong, deep, widespread roots. And so Psalm 1 is talking about inner transformation. Talking about what happens in your heart, your soul, in your life. And the first point that the psalmist makes is that roots need the right kind of soil in order to develop. Roots need the right kind of soil. And when I talk about soil, the metaphor there is really talking about thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I know this because Jesus confirmed that concept in the parable he told about the parable of the sower. Remember there, he, he, he gave us an image of what preaching the gospel is like. Preaching the gospel is like a sower going out and sowing, tossing out his seed upon the ground. And remember that in that parable, how that seed was received... And how that seed grew was dependent upon the condition of the soil where it landed. And so you had different kinds of soil in the the parable. You had soil that was hardened, soil that was rocky, soil that was weedy, 
And then you had soil that was good and full of nutrients and ready to receive the seed. And obviously, as Jesus told that story, the soil represents the condition of a person's heart. And so as the psalmist talks about our need to grow roots, he begins talking about the state of the heart as an important, a vital issue. And what he describes in verse 1 is how the blessed man has had his heart changed. And so what he's talking about is how we stand out from those who are not blessed by God in terms of salvation. How we stand out from the lost. How are we different from the world? And so that's what he's describing. Because the state of the heart is what makes us different. And so he's describing, in a sense, what we used to be before he changed us. As you look at the description there, there's a, there's a progression into hardness. Just like soil gets harder and harder as it's pressed down upon, you get that sense of hardening, a progression into greater hardness of heart. He talks about how the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And there he's speaking of the opinions, the principles, the worldview of those in the world. And then he talks about the way of sinners. And there he's talking about what uh, principles, what worldview, what mindset, what that produces is a lifestyle of sinners. And then the third point of progression is the seat of scoffers. In other words, the place where scoffers assemble. And there he's speaking of a state of the heart where you get to the point where you become a mocker, a scoffer, someone who ridicules what's true and ridicules God himself. In the book of Proverbs, when we studied that book last year, we saw how mockers and scoffers, those who get to that point of hardness, in the book of Proverbs, they're the ones that are the farthest from repentance. And so there's a progression. You notice the progression. Basically, you begin by listening to the counsel of the world. You put yourself in a place where you're open to receive the principles and worldview and mindset of the world. Then, as you listen, you begin to walk in those ways. And this progression can be very subtle, and you can get far down the progression without even realizing how far you've gone. You begin to walk in the ways that fit with the thoughts and principles and worldviews of the world. And then finally, you get to the point where you begin to mock and scoff at what's true, what's right, what's good, and what is of God. And so it goes from listening to participating to an attitude of the heart that is in hostility to truth. Well, what's the end of that? What if God leaves you in that state, in that natural state that we were all born with, with a heart that progresses towards that hardness? Well, the psalmist makes it very clear with another farming illustration. Notice that he doesn't say that the wicked, the unbelievers, those that are lost, he doesn't say that they are like unhealthy trees. He doesn't say that they're like scraggly little bushes. He says they're like chaff that is driven by the wind. Chaff, which is the most worthless thing that a farmer knows. In old-style farming, what you would do if you were harvesting wheat, you would take the wheat and you'd lay it out. You'd go to the highest hill where you'd have the best wind flow in your property. 
and you'd lay the, 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 they call that the threshing floor, and they'd lay the wheat out on the threshing floor, and then they would either, by using animals or big stone wheels, but by some means they would crush the wheat. And after it had been crushed, the farmer would take a winnowing fork, and he would scoop up the pile of what's left after it's been crushed, and he'd throw it up in the air. And the wind would take the lighter stalks and husks and blow it off to the side, and the good kernels would drop down because they're heavier, and that was his way of separating the wheat from the chaff. And so he would gather in the good wheat, and then he would take the chaff, and he'd pile it up and he'd burn it to get rid of it because it was worthless. So that's really, ultimately, as God looks at the world, that's the choice. You either become as a healthy, vibrant oak of righteousness, or you become like chaff. Remember when we were studying in the book of Ecclesiastes, we talked about how under the sun, as the book gives us what that perspective would look like, if all that is true is what we can know from observation under the sun, if that's all we could know, then there is no meaning, there is no purpose, all is vanity, all is chaff, because we have no word from above the sun. And so, really, the psalmist is saying the same thing. And he says, the destiny of the wicked, he spells it out, lest there be any doubt, the destiny of the wicked is found in verses 5 and 6. It says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see, the problem is not out there. The problem is within us. The problem is sin. It's not a matter of how much you're exposed to the lies and the false philosophies and the false worldviews and the false ethics and the false principles of the world. It's not how much you're exposed to that. It's how receptive you are to it. That's really the issue. It's about the state of your heart. Where do you look for your worldview? Where do you look for your identity? Where do you look for what you value, for what what your goals are in life? What's the state of your heart? I was thinking about that this week as I'm realizing that as those of you who come back to the university or come to the university for the first time, I love Penn State, best university around. But it is a place where you're going to hear a lot of errors a lot of falsehoods, a lot of false worldviews, a lot of lies, and you're going to see a lot of wickedness. But the danger is really in here, not out there. It's in the state of your heart. It's about how receptive you are to all that input that you're going to be taking in. What's the state of your heart? And you can't grow roots in hardened, rocky, or weedy soil. The roots will not develop. You see, the psalm starts with where we were. Where we were before grace. Where we were before Christ intervened in our lives. Where we were before the gospel brought us the word of truth. But understand that as Isaiah 61 says, the oaks of righteousness are a planting of the Lord. In other words, it's his work. He's got to bring it about. He's got to make that change in your heart. He's got to take that 
hardened, rocky, weedy soil that is inside of you and turn it into good soil that's ready to receive the seed of the word of God and then to bear roots. He must change the essence of your heart. It's what we call regeneration. It's what we call being born again. And he must do that to us or else we're all lost. But if he regenerates our heart, that new heart produces faith. And that faith is receptive to the word of God. And that's when transformation really begins to take place. Which brings us to the other aspect of how we become healthy and strong spiritually. Is that roots need continual access to life-giving water. For roots to develop, they have to have access to life-giving water at all times. That's why this tree is so healthy. It's because it was planted by streams of water. We have so much water in our country that we don't realize the, the strength of this image as it came across to those who originally read it. Palestine in Old Testament times was a dry and arid place. They would understand more deeply than we do that what a privileged location to be planted next to streams of water so that you had that life-giving source on an ongoing, daily, moment-by-moment basis. Well, the water that he's talking about here is in verse 2. Because the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Do you remember in... Ecclesiastes, the under the sun perspective, the reason that there was no hope, the reason there was no meaning, the reason no purpose in life under the sun is because there was no word from heaven. It's the word of God that makes all the difference. It's the word of God that brings meaning and purpose to life. It is the word of God that brings us the hope of life beyond death. It's the word of God that introduces us to this great Messiah who makes all this transformation take place. We live by the word of God. And so Psalm 119 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In other words, the way that the soil of our heart gets prepared to receive the word of God is it's by the word of God changing our thinking, changing our worldview, and changing our attitudes so that we are receptive to what the word of God says. And the way that it changes us is through what the, the psalm writer calls meditation. That's not Eastern meditation. It's not transcendental meditation. It's meditation upon the truth of God's word. The word in the original Hebrew means mumble. As you think about it, Old Testament believers didn't have the written word to nearly the degree that we have it. They didn't have access to it like we do. And so repeating the word of God, memorizing it, keeping it in their mind was essential in terms of what discipleship meant in that day and age. Reading it to yourself, reading it over and over, mumbling it, repeating it, carefully meditate upon it, which means considering it, using your intellect, using your brain, all the rational and, and intellectual capabilities and gifts that God has given you, apply it to the word of God. It can stand up to the scrutiny, believe me. It can stand up to whatever you throw at it. The word of God is true. Meditating means approaching it scientifically, philosophically, with all of the powers of your intellect. 
And when you do that, that's meditating upon it so that you can understand it more deeply and that as you understand it, it begins to transform your worldview, transform your principles, transform your ethics, and therefore transform the way you live your life and transform you. The whole process of Bible reading and study and prayer and reflection, this is what makes us grow strong and healthy spiritually. God has given us the word to make that happen. The key to God's people being prosperous, and by prosperous I don't mean health and wealth, I mean biblically prosperous. That no matter how much you may be poor and suffering and sick and dying in this life under the sun, spiritually vital and strong is what we're talking about. That's what prosperity is according to scripture. And the key to that hasn't changed since the day that the people of God went into the promised land under Joshua. Here's what the word of God said to Joshua and the people in that day. It says, I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law that by Moses, Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. If you're entering into the classroom at the university, you should read that passage before you go to class every day. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear. For the word of God is true. And it will stand up to whatever opposition you face. This is the nourishment that makes us healthy and strong. It leads us daily to the cross for forgiveness and renewal by God's grace. The word of God purges the principle of the world from your mind and replaces it with the principles of God's kingdom. The word of God gives you God's perspective on who you are. The Word of God gives you God's perspective on your life, on your calling, on your relationships. The Word of God gives you God's perspective on the political realm, upon the economic realm, upon the entertainment realm. It gives you God's perspective. The Word of God humbles you and gives you a dependent spirit. And the Word of God gives you peace and contentment and incredible hope for the future. That's how you become spiritually strong. I'll throw out the excuse that I most often hear for why we don't spend more time in the Word and meditating upon the Word. What is it? I'm too busy. I'm too busy. We live in the generation of humans on earth that has the most leisure time of any generation that's ever lived on this planet. Because of our advances in technology, scientific advances, many, many reasons, we have more free time than any generation before us. More time beyond the essentials of life. You don't believe me, go and camp for two weeks if you've never done that. Do you know what life is like when you're camping? Could you imagine doing your 40, 50, 60, 70 hour a week job while camping at the same time? Take so long just to get yourself out of bed and ready in the morning to get breakfast and to clean up after breakfast. And then, you know, when we were camping, oftentimes, when we had a lot of kids especially, by the time you're done cleaning up breakfast, it's start to make lunch, you know, to get lunch ready, get the fire ready and 
And then by the time you get lunch cleaned up, it's time to start supper. And then by the time you get supper cleaned up, it's time to put the kids to bed. And by the time you get the kids to bed, it's time for you to go to bed. How did, how did they ever work in those days and ages? We have time. We need to be honest with ourselves. That when we say we don't have time, what we're really saying is it's not my priority. I'm putting other things that are of far less eternal value in, in front of the thing that will make me spiritually strong and healthy and vital and fruitful. Peter Lillebeck is the uh, president of Westminster Seminary, and he was talking on this topic at one time, and he challenged us at the end of his talk. He said, if you just were to make a commitment to take one hour of of the typical day in your life, take one hour, and instead of spending it watching television or surfing the Internet, Spend that one hour in online instruction, in biblical knowledge, or biblical theology. Everybody did that in a church, just one hour. Subbed out one hour of mindless entertainment at the TV or at the computer screen and replaced it with one hour of studying scripture, studying biblical theology. It would transform the church. We need to go to the word to find our strength and our sustenance. Bob Coughlin, who is a worship leader in Sovereign Grace Churches and has written on worship quite a bit, he said this, he said, we'll have a hard time feasting on God's word if we're full from feasting at the table of the world. We will have a hard time feasting on God's word if we are full from feasting at the table of the world. What he's saying there is that we need to go to God's word to get our, self, our sense of identity, our sense of value, our sense of purpose, and to get satisfaction, emotional and spiritual satisfaction. But the problem is, too often we go to our work for that, or we go to our family, or we go to entertainment, we go to our favorite sports team, or we go to some social club, or whatever. We've got all these things in our lives that gives us a feeling of meaning and purpose and satisfaction. We go to those things, and then we wonder, why aren't we hungry for the word of God? We've got to be willing to push spiritual and emotional junk food to the side and go to the word for our satisfaction and our meaning and our purpose and fulfillment. There is no other way to grow strong and healthy in your spiritual life. There is no other way. And I'll tell you this. Every single person that I know, and I know a lot of spiritually mature people in my life, not a single person who is spiritually mature as I have met them would I say that they do not delight in the word of God? They do. That's what's consistently true of every person that I know of that is spiritually mature. There is no shortcut. We always want to find the end around. We want to find the shortcut. There is no shortcut. Spiritual health and maturity comes from the Holy Spirit changing the soil of our hearts so that it is receptive to the word of God and the word of God being planted in our heart and developing roots which feed upon continuously the word of God. You see how that's how we grow strong and healthy. God, when he looks at the world, he sees two assemblies. And Psalm 1 talks about two different assemblies. There is the assembly of the wicked, which is described in verse 1. And then there's the congregation of the righteous that he talks about in verse 5. And as he looks at those two groups of people, it looks so confusing to us, but from God's perspective, he sees two lifestyles among these two assemblies. There are those who neglect and reject and violate and mock God's word, 
And then there are those who delight in God's word and meditate upon it. You see, all of mankind is divided by its response to God's word. And let me just make clear that this isn't about knowing and studying and loving a book. That's not what it's about. Most world religions have a holy book. And most of those holy books, if you really look at how they treat their holy book, they treat reading it as though it's some meritorious religious ritual. That's not what we're talking about here. Matter of fact, in Jesus' day, even if you're just talking about the Old Testament, the Word of God, the Bible that they knew, there were men that studied, men and women who who were unbelieving Jews, who rejected Jesus Christ, who knew the Old Testament very, very well. Some of them, scribes, spent their whole life studying the Word of God, and yet they were lost. They were chaff in the sight of God. And Jesus addressed them in John 5, and this is what he said. He said, you do not have God's Word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Later on, Jesus asked his disciples, do you want to leave me too? Do you remember what Peter said? Peter said, Lord, to whom else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, this book is about Jesus Christ. This book is the means by which we meet Christ. This book is the means by which we hear from Christ. He communicates to us by this book. This is the will of Christ. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the hope of ever knowing God. This is the hope of ever having your sins forgiven. This is the hope of eternal life. It's this book that God has given us. It's not about trying harder. It's not about being more disciplined. It's not about how many hours you spend reading it. It's about do you meet Christ through his word? Do you love Christ through his word? Do you serve Christ through his word? He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. That is what we work towards here. That this be a place where the Spirit and the Word work together all the time to create disciples that are strong and vital and fruitful, that are changing the world around them. Let me just close by giving you some commitments on behalf of the leadership of the church. Because this is our vision, because this is our mission, let me make some commitments to you on behalf of the leadership. First of all, we will stay committed to the full authority of Scripture. The Bible is without error in the original manuscripts. It can be fully trusted. It is the very Word of God. By its own testimony, it is God-breathed. It is God speaking to us. And whether I'm in the pulpit or somebody comes behind me or beyond me for how many generations until Christ comes again, our commitment is that this church will always uphold the full authority of the Bible as God's very word. And we will always remember that the focus of Scripture is Jesus Christ, that it was written about him. And so we will reflect that in all of our preaching and teaching that it's about Christ. And it's about the gospel. We're not going to get caught up in all the secondary issues. It's about Christ 
in the gospel. We're going to major on the majors and minor on the minors when it comes to the teaching of Scripture. Secondly, we will stay committed to the full sufficiency of Scripture. That we don't need to add to what God has given us in his word, and we do, must never take away from it. As the Westminster Confession said, and just think about that, the doctrinal standards of this church and the denomination that we're a part of was written in the 1640s because God's word doesn't change. And what they wrote in the 1640s was the same thing the apostles taught because God's word doesn't change. Our culture is going to change. Ethics around us are going to change. Worldviews around us are going to change. God's word does not change, and it is sufficient. This is what the Westminster Confession said in the 1640s, and this is what we believe, that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life are contained in the word of God. We will not add to it. We will not take away from it. And thirdly, we are going to show these commitments by making God's word central to everything we do here. When we worship, God is going to speak first, we will listen, and then we will respond in worship. And so the liturgy of our worship is always going to be driven by God's word speaking to God's people. When we hear the word of God explained, we're going to have expository sermons. Expository sermons means that we are going to be digging into a particular text of God's word, a particular portion of it, and what we study and what we look at and what we hear is going to come from that passage in the context of all the rest of Scripture. And the point of the message is going to be the point of the passage because it's going to be about God speaking through his word, not man's words. And our Sunday school classes are going to take seriously the job of educating you so that you know what God's word says so that you can understand it, so that you can interpret it, and so you can apply it to your lives. That as you take your university education or you have taken your school education seriously in the past, we're going to take education in the scriptures seriously. And our Sunday school classes are going to be about teaching biblical knowledge and biblical doctrine and biblical worldviews and how to apply that to life. And we will always have small group Bible studies where you can gather and fellowship, yes, but fellowship in the context of God's word as you grow together, as you edify one another, as you study God's word together. The health and vitality of this church comes from the Holy Spirit changing your hearts, preparing your hearts to receive the word of God, and then the word of God being faithfully proclaimed and planted within your hearts so that you can bear roots which produces Spiritual health and vitality, which produces fruit, which we'll talk about next week, which transforms the world. That's what we're about here, and I hope that that's why you're here and why you want to stay with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that you have not left us under the sun without any guidance and direction, without hope, without meaning, without purpose. But Lord, you have spoken, and more than that, you have come through your Son, Jesus Christ, as the second person of the Trinity came and dwelt in our midst and became the Word incarnate. And Lord, we thank you that he died in our place and shed his blood and paid the price for our sins and was raised from the dead so that he might give us new birth, so that our hearts might be changed, so that we might receive your Word, so that we might become like him. That is our hope. And our hope is built upon the promises of your word alone. 
and upon the one that your word presents, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Thank you for calling us to yourself. Use us as your witnesses to share that message of life and truth with others whom you are calling to yourself. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.